thank you for coming tonight. Uh, we, uh, a lot of our own people are away, so we really appreciated. I really appreciate you coming uh, and making the effort to come tonight. So just while others are gathering for the last couple of minutes before we start formally, we'll sing a, we'll sing a couple of verses of 826. We're so thin in the ground, we're not even going to play the organ tonight, so I'm afraid to say you better sing up well and uh, we'll make the best of it as we can. Another thing you might notice that tonight the speaker that was advertised is not here. Uh, and uh, Alan Gamble's had to call off because of uh, ill health and uh, Sinclair Banks from Peterhead have very kindly agreed to step in at very short notice so we're very grateful to Sinclair for agreeing to do that. Uh, so we'll just remain seated and sing the first and last verses of 826. I'm a pilgrim and a stranger, rough and thorny is the road, often in the midst of danger, but it leads to God. Remaining seated. I'm a pilgrim and a stranger, rough and thorny is the road, often in the midst of danger, but it leads to God. Clouds and darkness oft distress me, great and from up here so I reckon we'll start proper by standing to sing the whole of number 847 847 twas Jesus my saviour who died on the tree to open a fountain for sinners like me his blood is that fountain which pardon bestows and cleanses the foulest wherever it flows so we'll stand and sing the whole of 847 Twas Jesus my Saviour who died on the tree to open a fountain for sinners like me.
take these words on our lips the one who broke every chain none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who will also 
be the only one who can break the seals and open the book thereof. Our Father, we thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank thee for all that he has done for us, and all that he means to us, and all that he means to thee. We thank thee that he is the reason why we're here tonight, to learn more of him from thy word, and seek to be more like him. Our Father, we thank thee that we are able to be here tonight and conduct services like this in this land. And we pray that it may long continue in thy will. Our Father, we pray for everyone who is gathered here tonight for making the effort to come out on such a bad night. And we thank thee for this. We pray especially for Sinclair as he opens thy word and reads from it and passes on thy message to us. We pray for Alan Gamble tonight as well and pray for him that his health may be restored and that he may be feeling better. Our Father, we would ask for a blessing to be on us tonight, and we ask all of this in the name of thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And for those of you who weren't in when I announced earlier, first of all, let me thank you all for coming tonight. We appreciate you being here, being that we're pretty small in numbers ourselves this weekend. A lot of the whole bunch of people are away, uh, so we do thank you very much for coming out and helping boost the numbers at the meeting. And as you may have picked up, that Alan Gamble cannot be with us tonight. Uh, he has a bad cold, I believe, and the flu, so he is not able to be with us. And Sinclair Banks from Peterhead has very kindly stepped in and agreed to take the meeting for us at short notice. So, not bad having a deputy to step in like that. So we'll be okay, I think. Uh, other meetings uh, ahead of us, obviously Alan was up for the weekend, so Ian Lewis will have the ministry tomorrow morning. He has stepped in and agreed to do that, which is very nice and kind of him as well. Uh, and the gospel tomorrow night is Ian Wilkie. Other meetings for your diary on the... Uh, 25th of February, Woodside, Fountain Hall, Woodside, at 7.30pm, Kenneth Murray from New Stevenson, that's a date for your diary. And then our next, uh, and the final, will be our conference, the Holborn Conference, the annual conference at 3pm in Victoria Gospel Hall, Torrey, on the 11th of March. And the speakers expected then are Douglas Mowat from Och and David Williamson from Belfast. All these meetings, of course, are in the will of the Lord. Now just so you know, perhaps most of you know, but we are vacating our hall here. Tomorrow is our last Sunday in the hall here. It is going to be renovated, uh, redecorated. I think it's about, my estimation, it's about 40 years since it was decorated. So it's held up not bad. Uh, so it's getting redecorated and there's some remedial work to be done as well. So we'll intend to be out in the hall for 10 to 12 weeks. And we, were, we are meeting with the brethren and sisters in Victoria Hall and Torrey during that time. They have space and have very kindly agreed to put up with us for a period of 10 to 12 weeks. So the meeting times are roughly the same as our own meeting times. Uh, so uh, there's not much difference there, but just go across the river uh, and I'm sure you'll be made very welcome. Now before Sinclair comes and speaks to us, perhaps we can stand and sing 647. <coughs> 647, oh what fellowship, oh what joy is mine resting in the everlasting arms, oh what blessedness, oh what peace divine resting in the everlasting arms. Standing to sing 647. Oh what fellowship, oh what joy is mine resting in the everlasting arms, oh 
chapter 3, Romans and chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Romans 3, 21 to the end of the chapter. Suppose if you were asked to give a, a passage or a verse that was the gospel in a nutshell, then most perhaps would say John 3, 16, and of course we wouldn't take issue with that, uh, but others might say Romans 3, 21 to 26. And that would be equally true. So we're going to think about these verses tonight. Romans 3, 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude 
that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law? Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. And we trust that God will bless that reading of his word to all of our hearts. I suppose one of the great themes of the book of Romans is the subject of righteousness. And in the verses that we have read tonight, we have righteousness presented as a central theme. I want to divide the section that we have read into two. In verses 21 to 26, I want to write over that section, righteousness provided. And then in verses 27 to 31, righteousness possessed. Now, when I make the chapter division, uh, we need to be careful about chapter divisions. They're not absolute, they are relative. Uh, The reason why I have written over the last section, righteousness possessed, is because there are five references to faith. And faith is, of course, the basis for coming into the good of the righteousness provided. But that doesn't mean that faith is absent from the previous section, but it's not emphasised as much. There are two references to faith in the previous section as well. But in the first uh, verses 21 to 26, uh, there is emphasis on righteousness provided. And we'll see in that section that central to it is the blood of Christ. And in relation to the second section, righteousness possessed, Uh, Not absent in the previous section, but emphasised in that section, we see there the emphasis is faith in Christ. And so, uh, the provision of righteousness is centred on the blood of Christ, and the possession of that provision is centred on faith in Christ. And we'll think about these matters as we look at the verses. Now, uh, this is of course one of the great passages of the New Testament. And it's against a backdrop, a rather dark backdrop of the the summary of chapters 1 to 3, where the whole of mankind has come before God, if you like, into the courtroom of God. And the whole of mankind has passed before God, and uh, different kinds of mankind have been presented. In chapter 1, for example, we have what we might call a heathen man, and Uh, He is described in in the depth and degradation of his sin, particularly towards the end of that chapter. Uh, And in connection with what we might call heathen man, uh, unenlightened man, uh, there has been the testimony of creation. And so in chapter 1, we read in verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, but not only clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And there is a remarkable verse in the context of the world in which we live, when in the highest echelons of society and academia, there is a total denial, virtually total denial of creation. And yet Romans 1 says they are without excuse. As such as the evidence in creation of the eternal power and Godhead of God himself that they are without excuse. And so although unenlightened, nonetheless they are without excuse in the testimony of creation. 
And then in the early part of chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, we have what we might call an enlightened man, eh, perhaps also a self-righteous man who considers himself better than the man of chapter 1. And he also has a testimony. And the testimony in chapter 2, verse 15 is this, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And so the enlightened man who despises the goodness of God, uh, he is a man who has the testimony of his own conscience. And therefore he has testimony as to God and his being and his standards. But then you come on to the third uh, person a category of persons perhaps in verse 17 of chapter 2 largely down to chapter 3 and verse 8 and he is a Jew or we could say a religious man but a Jew is brought before us and he too has a testimony in these verses uh, 2.17 down to 3.8 there is repeated reference to circumcision he has the testimony of circumcision that is to say the covenant between God and his people. And he is a greatly privileged man. As a Jew, the question is asked in chapter 3 verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Chapter 3 verse 2. Much every way. He's a tremendously privileged man. And yet, whether it's the heathen man. Or the enlightened man. Or the religious Jew. Concerning each one. The verdict is the very same. They have all been brought before God. And the verdict is given in chapter 3 and verse 9. We have before proved, says Paul, as each category of mankind has been brought before the bar of God. Paul says we have proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And Paul gives in the verses that follow a definition of what it means to be under sin. None righteous, none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God, all gone out of the way, and so on. And so he comes down to verse 19 and he says, all the world guilty before God. And so here is a guilty world. No exceptions, no difference, no matter what category of mankind we look at. Whether he's in privilege or not. Whether he's enlightened or unenlightened. Wherever he lives and whenever he lives. Here is mankind. Equally and totally guilty before God. Guilty of sin. Guilty of unrighteousness. And what does guilty man need? Well he needs a righteous provision. From a holy God that can meet him in his need. And that's the passage that we have read this evening. The provision of God to meet the need of a guilty world. And we want to think about that provision of God in verses 21 to 26. We want to think about it in three ways. In verses 21 to 23, there is a manifestation of righteousness provided. It says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Then we want to think verses 24 and 25 of the foundation of righteousness provided, central to that, the blood of Christ. And then the latter part of 25 and 26, a declaration of righteousness provided. And you will see at the end of 25, it's in connection with the past to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins 
that are past. And verse 26, in relation to the present, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. So we'll think about that. But let me just make a one other, if you like, introductory remark to this section. If your Bible is like mine, then you will notice in verse 21 that it is that but now the righteousness of God, the word the, is in italics. And so uh, what we could really say is this, but now a righteousness of God without the law is manifested. And what is in view here is a righteous provision that comes from God. So when we read of the righteousness of God in verse 21, uh, then we discover this, that it's not the personal righteousness of God that's in view. But when you come to verse 25, it's different. There it is to declare his righteousness. And again, verse 26, that his righteousness, he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So we're thinking initially of a righteous provision that God has made. A righteous basis upon which God can meet the guilty world in all its need. But then when we come down to the end of this section, we discover this, that the provision that God has made is entirely in keeping with his righteousness. And so it must be. God can never offer salvation at any cost to his personal righteousness and holiness and character. He must always be true to his being. And so he is. So we're thinking firstly of a righteousness provided by God to meet the need of a guilty world. Let's think of three matters relating to the manifestation of righteousness provided. First of all, the timing of the revelation or the manifestation. Look what Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God is manifested. And then when you come down to verse 26, Paul says, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. So Paul is bringing us to the present. He is saying now, at this time. And he's contrasting the provision that God has made that is a righteous provision. He's contrasting that with what is past. And what is past? Well, we know from verse 20, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And in the past there was the impossibility of being right with God by means of the law. By means of law keeping. And so Paul is now contrasting what is past with what is now present. He's not just thinking when he is writing. But now Paul is thinking of what is true of this whole dispensation. What is true of this whole age. Here is a, an age of grace in which God is making a righteous provision available to a world that is undis indisputably guilty before God. And so we learn this, that you and I, we live in a very privileged dispensation in which God has made provision in a way that he hadn't made before. But now a righteousness of God without the law is manifested. What a privileged age we live in. No more privileged dispensation than the one in which we live. And so the apostle uh, speaks something of the timing of the revelation. 
But then he speaks also of testimony to the revelation. It's not that this revelation is inconsistent with what has gone before. God cannot be inconsistent. Uh, There is therefore testimony to this revelation in that past age. And so he speaks of uh, the testimony of the law and the prophets. Verse 21. Now we will think more about the testimony of the law as we come down to verse 24 and 25. And think particularly of the picture of the mercy seat. And in the mercy seat there is a lovely testimony to this provision that God will make and has made in this age. Uh, But there is also the testimony of the prophets. And you will remember in Isaiah 53, there the the great song of the suffering servant. And there we have a, a wonderful and yet very solemn unveiling of the sufferings of Christ. And as a result of what he suffers and of the pouring out of his soul unto death. You remember that he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. That is to say by the knowledge of him. By believing on him the suffering servant. The one who was poured out unto death by the knowledge of him. Shall he justify many? And there in the prophets, there is testimony to this righteousness that God has provided in this privileged dispensation. So there is testimony to this revelation in the law and the prophets. And of course, you will be able to think of more witnesses in the law and the prophets than what I have mentioned. But then thirdly, the terms of the revelation or the manifestation of this righteousness provided. First of all, verse 21, and we've touched on this a little, it is without the law. Uh, What a wonderful truth that is. Man had never been able to keep the law. All the law had done was expose the fact of man's sinfulness. And it's apart from the law, apart from the deeds of the law, apart from law keeping, that a man is right with God. What a tremendous message. What a tremendous revelation. Here is that which is offered independent of law keeping. If it was law keeping that was the basis of being right with God. None of us would ever be right with him. But here is a righteous provision. Which is apart from the law. Not only is it apart from the law. Verse 22. It is by faith of Jesus Christ. Now this is not speaking about the personal faith. Of Jesus Christ. Uh, He was marked by faith. You remember in Hebrews 12. Looking off unto Jesus. The author and finisher. Of faith. And how did he demonstrate that faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross despising the shame. And is now set down at the right hand. Of the majesty on high. He was marked by faith. And he is the great leader. And consummator. And example and leader of faith. But that's not the idea here. It's not the faith that belongs to Jesus Christ. But here it is the faith that is exercised in Jesus Christ. And here is that which is firstly apart from the law. And is by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We'll make more emphasis on that in a later time in the passage. But then in verses 22 and 23, not only is it apart from the law and by faith, but in its terms, 
It is unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. What a wonderful provision this is. Uh, God moving out towards Jew and Gentile. No distinctions now between Jew and Gentile. God is moving unto all. That is to say, in its direction, it's towards all. In its provision, it is available to all. In the righteous provision that God has made, there is the possibility for all to be saved. And I want to just emphasize tonight that in the provision of the death of Christ, there must be no concept of a limited atonement. The Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross of Calvary, as we shall, th- as we shall see, has satisfied the claims of God. And in offering an eternal and infinite sacrifice, there is provision for all to be saved. It is unto all. And we're glad about that. Because, says Paul, for there is no difference, verse 23, for all have sinned. And therefore all need the provision. And God has met the guilty world in its need. And has made provision for all to be saved. There is here a definition of sin, one definition of sin, and it is come short of the glory of God. That's an interesting way uh, to describe sin. We might have thought that Paul would have said, and come short of the holiness of God, but he doesn't say that. He says, come short of the glory of God. And I would say that you would agree with this, that the holiness of God cannot be separated from the glory of God. You remember in Isaiah 6, in that vision that Isaiah had of the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne, his train filled the temple, the whole earth full of his glory. And you remember the heavenly beings, they cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they very much saw a direct link between the holiness of God and the glory of God. It was seen also in the garments of the high priest. You remember in Exodus 28, it says there, Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And as far as God is concerned, there is glory and there is beauty where there is holiness. And so we have here man falling short of the glory of God, falling short of the holiness of God, unable to rise to the standard of God, everyone falling short. But for a guilty world, there is provision to meet its need. And this is a message in its terms, in its offer, that is unto all. But you will have noticed that there is another all in the verse. Paul says unto all and upon all them that believe. And I would suggest to you that if the first all is embracive and has in view the availability of provision, the second all is the availing of the provision, making effective the provision. And so it is offered to all in its scope. It's offered to all in its availability. But it's only all who believe, who come into the good of the provision that God has made. And so we have something of the provision of God in the death of Christ, as we shall see. But sadly, not all believe. But it's only effective and availing to those who believe. 
And so we have the terms of this revelation. It is without the law. It's by faith of Jesus Christ. And it's unto all. But it's upon all them that believe. Maybe at this moment I may just ask if there are any in the company and you've not availed yourself of the provision that God has made. Oh tonight that you would believe on the Lord who died for sins and for sinners. And who has made your salvation possible by his death. How sad that there is provision for all and yet all do not believe. But let's think secondly in this uh, first section of righteousness provided uh, of verses 24 and 25. The foundation of righteousness provided. On what basis can a righteous and holy God move out towards a guilty world? And offer them a righteousness that meets them in their needs. On what basis? And we have the foundation for that in verses 24 and 25. He says, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. There's one of the the great Bible words, justified. Uh, We were speaking earlier at tea time about uh, John Riddle. And uh, I remember being in a, a... a meeting and a Bible reading or something of that format with John Riddle and he asked the question uh, what does justified mean and some poor soul put his hand up and said just as if I'd never sinned and thought he'd given the right answer and John says not quite not quite and uh, what John was indicating was that uh, justification was slightly more than just as if I'd never sinned Uh, that would be righteousness imputed on innocent man that would be good enough by the way that would be wonderful but uh, justification is far greater than that it's righteousness imputed declared on guilty man here is man and indisputably uh, the word that Paul uses in verse 9 is proved, charged, convicted is guilty sinful, without exception beyond doubt evidence overwhelming And in spite of being guilty, God is willing to declare righteous, deemed to be right, the guilty sinner. Of course, on the basis of faith, as we will emphasize in due course, but God is willing to declare righteous, the guilty sinner. Is there a more wonderful truth in eternity? That you and I, though wrong, though sinful, though guilty, indisputably so, can know God declaring us to be right, deeming us to be right. I do want to make the distinction between a declaration of righteousness and God making us righteous. This is not practical righteousness that's in view. Now, I do appreciate and agree with any who will say immediately, as believers, we should be practically righteous. That is 100% true. It's not the truth of this verse. The truth of this verse is that God has declared us to be right. It's a legal and binding, irrevocable declaration of a rightness and a righteousness that God has imputed upon guilty, sinful man. It doesn't make us righteous practically, it should result in that, but that's not what this is. And therefore, it is not subject to degree, it's not subject to circumstance, it cannot be varied, it is a fact for eternity. That the guilty sinner is declared to be right with God. What a wonderful truth. Paul touches on it later on in chapter 8. You remember in that great chapter when he brings out these 
the five great golden links of divine purpose. What a truth that is, divine purpose. Here's what God is doing. Uh, God foreknows. God predestinates. God calls. And those who are foreknown, predestinated and called of God according to divine purpose, they are justified. They are declared to be right. It's in divine purpose. And then they are glorified. And in that chapter 8, Paul considers the possibility of someone perhaps challenging this. Here are guilty sinners. How can they be right with God, declared to be right? How can God deem them to be right? How can he give them a standing before him that makes them right in his eyes? And so perhaps Paul is imagining someone who is challenging him. And he says in that chapter, What shall we say then to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Perhaps someone will come along and say, But I knew him or I know him. and He's done this and he's done that. But then says Paul, Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And if God justifies, if God declares that person to be right, then there's not one person can lay any charge against God's elect. And if by faith you are justified, right with God, that can never be taken away, can never be eroded. It's not subject to changing circumstances in life. And though we may know spiritual highs and lows, and we do, this truth is unchanging. We are right with God. And not one person can lay a single charge against God's elect. It's a wonderful truth. In that old economy, as we shall think, men did not know that justification. We'll think about that in a moment or two. But how wonderful to think. That we are declared to be right, irrevocably and legally so. May we rejoice in it and recognise that there's not one person or one thing can take that away (coughs) from us. And so Paul speaks of the great truth of being justified, cleared of every charge, guilt removed, acquitted, though guilty. And here is God declaring righteous, the guilty sinner. But then he says, uh, not only are we justified, but it's justified freely by his grace. And it's if we're climbing the mountain. Here is the guilty sinner, undeserving. And God bestows it freely by his grace. I suppose uh, we could contrast the freely with that old economy, with the Old Testament. Uh, and when it was, uh, someone in that old economy sinned and to bring an offering to God, they to bring Something that was costly to them. A lamb or a bullock or whatever it was. It was costly. They had to sacrifice. But not now. The justified sinner is in the good of that feeling. What a wonderful truth. Why? Because it's by his grace. These words go together freely by his grace. And the grace of God teaches us that we are unworthy, undeserving. There's nothing in us that merits the great standing that God brings us into, we are justified freely by his grace. May we ever appreciate this. It should save any one of us from any sense of pride in any way to recognize that the standing we have in the presence of God before God and eternally is by his grace. We didn't deserve it. 
We were guilty sinners, hopeless, wretched, ruined. But God has declared us, deemed us to be right. So it's freely by his grace, and I suppose grace here stands in contrast to the works of the law, by which, verse 20, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So two truths are brought before us, two great truths. One is redemption and one is propitiation. Suppose if redemption is manward in its emphasis, propitiation is Godward in its emphasis. And what is this great basis that God has uh, provided for us? There is a manward aspect, there is a Godward aspect, and how wonderful that that is the case. Paul speaks about redemption in verse 24. Redemption through his blood. And so we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is the idea of a releasing on a payment made. And so here is the the guilty sinner in bondage to sin, under its slavery, gripped by it, but released as a result of the payment of a ransom price. And so we thought previously of this, that you and I are justified freely by his grace. But we have only ever come into the good of that because of the greatest price that was ever paid. The price of the death of the Lord Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. He is the one who gave his life. He is the one who paid the price. He is the one whose blood is the basis for our redemption. And you and I are delivered, set free, released from sin and its bondage and its guilt. Because of the price that he paid. Redemption. That's a manward aspect of the foundation that God has laid. But then there is the Godward aspect. What a glorious truth this is. In verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Now in this verse, I just want to make this point before we consider its detail. Perhaps we could put it this way. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith. And if you could put a comma in there, it would give the sense, by his blood. And it gives this idea. Whom God hath set forth. Through faith. Faith is exercised in the whom. And the propitiation is by or in his blood. So the point is this. That the faith in the verse is not in his blood. The faith is in the whom. The person of Christ Jesus. I hope that uh, is clear. It's not so much faith in the blood. But faith in Christ. The blood is the basis for the propitiation that he has provided. Now having said that. Let's think about this great truth of propitiation. Now in the New Testament uh, there are three words for propitiation. All very closely related of course. And uh, all conveying the same general idea but with a slightly different emphasis. And so in 1 John the word is used twice. uh, Another word from this one. And you know that that word very well in 1 John 2. That he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then again down in chapter 4 of John's uh, first epistle. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And there the emphasis is on the person who propitiates. It's the son of God. It's the Lord Jesus. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. But when you come to Hebrews 2, there is a word there that is translated in the authorised version, reconciliation. It is in fact another word for propitiation. And the emphasis there is less on the person than on the provision. And so in Hebrews 2, there is reference made to the Lord Jesus, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He has made provision for the sins of the people, and on that basis, the Lord Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Provision for the sins of the people. But here in uh, Romans chapter 3, and again in Hebrews 9 verse 5, there is another word. And in Hebrews 9 verse 5, it is in fact translated mercy seat. And that's the word here in Romans chapter 3. And its emphasis not now on the, pers- on the, the person who propitiates, nor on the provision of propitiation, but its emphasis on the place of propitiation. It is the word for mercy seat. Now, I know that most of you will know that uh, in the tabernacle there were two compartments. There was the holy place and then there was the holiest of all. And in the holiest of all there was the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was what we might call the lid of the Ark. And that lid of the Ark covered the contents of the Ark. And then there was the cherubim overlooking the Ark speaking to us of the holiness of God. But that lid of the ark, once a year when the high priest went into the holiest of all and him only, it became a mercy seat. And it became a mercy seat when there was blood upon it. And on the basis of the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed was brought into the the holiest of all sprinkled once upon the mercy seat and seven times before the mercy seat, the high priest who was a sinner could stand in the presence of God and God could there meet with man on the basis of shed blood sprinkled on the lid of the ark which then became the mercy seat. And of course the holiness of God looking upon that shed blood was satisfied with the bloodshed as a basis for God meeting with man. And that priest could stand in the presence of God because of shed blood and only because of shed blood. And so that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat was the basis for God being satisfied. There was no inherent value in the blood of the animal that was shed. But the value was in the fact that it pointed forward to the blood of Christ. It was a picture of his shed blood. And it's in the value of the shed blood of Christ that God could look upon that blood in the mercy seat. And could meet with man on the basis of that which was sacrificed. And so the picture now reaches its fulfilment. The shadow now reaches its substance. And Paul says here, "Eh, there is not now the mercy seat that was in the tabernacle. But there is the mercy seat. And the Lord Jesus is the one whom God has set forth to be a mercy seat. And that is to say, a basis for God to justify man has been laid in the shed blood of Christ. And in the shed blood of Christ, God in all his holiness and his righteousness has been eternally vindicated and satisfied. And on the basis of that shed blood that God looks upon... There is a basis for you and I to be right with God.
And Christ therefore is here set forth a mercy seat. Uh, interestingly, he is set forth. That is to say, he is brought into open view. Only the high priest could enter into the holiest of all. And only he could look upon that Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. But now there is one who is set forth, shown forth, pointed out, uh, made known to all as the basis upon which God is able to justify guilty men. And so the provision has been made, the blood has been shed, God is satisfied, a righteous foundation is laid. And it's by faith in the one who shed his blood that that provision can be availed of if by guilty man and be made right with God. So there is a righteous foundation upon which God can justify man. These are glorious truths. Uh, they are far richer and deeper than we have time to ex expound or even ability to expound. Far from it. Uh, and I would encourage those, especially who are younger, to understand these verses early in life, early in Christian experience, and it will be for your spiritual well-being. So, then we want to think thirdly in this section of a declaration of righteousness provided, and we'll have to hurry on. Uh, in verse 25, a declaration in relation to that which is past. And in verse 26, a declaration in relation to that which is present. Verse 25, uh, on this basis, on this foundation, we can declare his righteousness, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that is God's. It is his personal righteousness. That can be declared. It can be made known. It can be pointed out. For the remission of sins that are past. Now that word remission is not the word that we sometimes use for uh, forgiveness in the New Testament. It's a different word. This is the word for passing over. And so what's in view here is this. That in the Old Testament God passed over sins. Albert Leckie said this, the blood of the Old Testament was a temporary measure. And so this is not the sending away of sins, but this is the passing over of sins. That belonged to the old economy. Uh, Paul says, uh, the righteousness of God for the remission of sins that are past. That's not our past sins that's in view here. It's the sins of a past age, an old economy. And then he says, through the forbearance of God... And that word forbearance is the idea of a holding back. And so what we have is this, that God withheld judgment due without remitting sins. He passed them over. And this passage is teaching us that God was righteous to do that. Because the Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to Calvary when divine justice would be fully, finally and eternally satisfied in the shed blood of Christ. And so there's a declaration of the righteousness of God to pass over sins in a past age. But then in verse 26, we can declare at this time his righteousness. What an amazing truth this is. Not now the forbearance of God, simply holding back judgment, but the justice of God, that he might be just and justify the guilty sinner who believes in Jesus in that past age, sins were passed over. They were not sent away. They were not remitted. But not now. What a wonderful truth is this. That in this age, in relation to what God is now doing, there is guilt removed, acquittal of every charge, 
a righteous standing before God and every sin remitted out of sight. And God says, your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. Now, God can't forget, but he chooses to remember no more. And therefore, as far as this age is concerned, it's not now just the passing over of sins, but it's the forgiving of sins, the remitting of sins, clearing of every charge, acquittal from guilt, and a right standing with God. And we can declare that. God is absolutely just to do so. Because of the shed blood of Christ, his righteousness has been satisfied, and therefore God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, there are more details there, but I do want to come to the final section for the last five minutes and think of emphasis on righteousness possessed. Paul, of course, is making much emphasis on the contrast with uh, law-keeping, and particularly in relation to the Jew. And he wants to emphasise that in this age, that it's by faith, and in fact in chapter 4 he's going to show that it's always been justification by faith. Uh, but now in chapter 3, uh, he's going to emphasise it here as well. And so in verses 27 and 28, uh, faith is in contrast to works. In verses 29 and 30, faith is common to all. And in verse 31, faith consolidates the law. So he says, verses 27 and 28, faith is seen in contrast to works. Where is boasting then? He says it is shut out entirely. If it was possible to be right with God on the basis of law keeping, there would be ground for boasting. And so Paul says, by what law of works? Nay, by no means. But he says, by the law of faith. And the principle of faith alone in Christ alone excludes any ground for boasting. Man can only be right with God by means of faith alone in Christ alone. And so, in verse 28, Paul says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And so the basis for being right with God is not by law keeping. It's impossible but by faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we said in chapter 4, uh, Paul will show that actually that's always the principle for being right with God, as Abraham was, uh, not by law-keeping. But then in verses uh, 29 and 30, Paul is emphasising faith is common to all. Uh, the Jew is prone to boasting. That's maybe why Paul says in verse 27, where is boasting then? Look at chapter 2. Verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. He's proud, he boasts. Paul says, you've no ground for boasting. It's faith alone in Christ alone that saves. And in fact, he's not only the God of the Jews, but verses 29 and 30, he's the God of the Gentiles also. Are we not glad about that? I don't know if there's any Jews here tonight. It's possible. Uh, but... Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. Well, says the Apostle, uh, here is a message that's common to all, and the faith that saves, that justifies, is common to Jew and to Gentile. He is not all, he is not, is he not also of the Gentiles? Paul says, yes, of the Gentiles also. Why? Verse 30, it is one God, or God is one. And that was, of course, what the Jews loved to boast in. God is one. But Paul says that's true of the Gentiles as well. And so he says, God is one which shall justify 
the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. And for those of you who are interested in the, the detail of scripture, there's two prepositions here. Notice he says at the end of verse 30, justify the circumcision, that's the Jews, by faith, or uh, by faith, and then uncircumcision through faith. The first preposition is the idea of out of faith. And the reason why Paul uses that preposition, it seems, is this. He's been emphasising for the Jew particularly that being right with God is not out of the law. Out of the law there comes the knowledge of sin, the fact of sin, and the absolute hopelessness of man to keep sin. But now, as far as the, the, the Jew is concerned, uh, to be right with God is out of faith. Arising from faith, not by the law. Uh, that's how you're right with God. But then he says, and it's a very simple preposition for the, the Gentile who really has nothing to do with the works of the law and never had, it's through faith. And the simple principle of faith, uh, the Gentile is right with God. And the point he's emphasising in these two verses is that faith is common to all. That's the basis for being right with God, Jew or Gentile. But then in verse 31, uh, faith consolidates the law. Some might say, Paul, you're giving the law a very hard time. Is it really that bad? Can we do away with it altogether? Well, in chapter 7, Paul tells us, no, we can't. The law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is essentially good. It's man that's wrong. It's man that's bad. It's man that's sinful. It's man that's exposed by the law. Paul says, there's nothing wrong with the law. And so... Paul says in verse 31, do we make void the law through faith? Do we make it without effect? Paul says, God forbid. No, he says we establish the law. That is, we cause it to stand. So by exercising faith in Christ, we consolidate, we cause the law to stand tall. Why is that? Because there is one who kept the law. There is one who matched up to the law. There is one who magnified the law and made it honourable. And because of faith in him, as one who kept the law, met its demands, then we consolidate the law by faith in Christ alone. So what a glorious chapter this is. Uh, well worth understanding the details of it, young and old. To appreciate something of the greatness of what God has done for guilty sinners. Ruined and wretched. And yet right with God. Freely, by grace, but at tremendous cost to God, in the shed blood of Christ, who satisfied God, who has appeased his justice, and on that basis of God satisfied, he moves out to guilty man. And those who believe in Jesus, interestingly, Jesus there, not the Lord Jesus as in chapter 10, but Jesus, because emphasis is on uh, the, the man who shed his blood and who paid the price that satisfied God, resting where God rests, is the basis for being right with God. And what a, a glorious fact that we stand here tonight, right with God and fit for him because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee tonight for the, the terms of the gospel. We thank you for the, the great truths that we have sought to understand in a little measure this evening and acknowledge that we little appreciate the greatness of the work of Christ, but we return to thee tonight and thank thee for the shed blood of thy Son that has satisfied thee and redeemed us and brought us into a right standing with thee. 
Help us to appreciate these matters, to rejoice in them and to enjoy them. May we appreciate the security of our salvation as it is we depend upon him and not ourselves. It's the result of divine purpose that we are justified and may we lay hold upon that and may it be that each one of us will rejoice in what thou hast done for us. So we thank thee for each one here tonight. We pray thy blessing upon all. We think of the assembly here. May thou wilt preserve it and bless it in days to come and in practical arrangements in the weeks that follow. Pray that all will be for thy glory and honour. We remember other assemblies represented here and pray thy blessing upon each one and all families represented and pray that each family circle represented will one day be unbroken by and by. So we commend ourselves to thee now with thankfulness for the Saviour and for uh, temporal mercies to meet the needs of our bodies. We thank thee for the kindness of those who prepared them and pray thy blessing upon them. Thanking thee now for the Saviour and in his name. Amen.